have to report something which will be good news, I think, to the regulars around here, that I have this morning received authorization to arrange for the air conditioning of 523, 522, and 502. That's the SLS lounge in the room next to it and the Book Arts Press down the hall and also for good measure 512. So this is the last time that we will be sweating and freezing alternately, at least, during rare book school. Our speaker this evening is John Bidwell, a Columbia College graduate, a Columbia School of Library Service graduate, and someone we're happy to say who's been much mixed up with us ever since. He speaks tonight on aspects of 19th century American papermaking. As is our usual custom, we'll have a reception immediately following the lecture uh, tonight in room 505, air conditioned room 505. Uh, where the usual potables and such will be available, and I hope you'll all join us then. So, John Bidwell on the Troubles in Brandywine. Thank you, Terry. In July 1808, Harriet Burkett escaped from the Brandywine paper mill for the fourth time. Harriet had wheedled permission to go out for a walk, but instead of strolling outdoors, she sneaked upstairs, threw all her best clothes out the window, and scampered down the road to nearby Wilmington, Delaware. Magdalena Temple also fled repeatedly declaring that she would rather run away or kill herself than work in the mill. What was wrong with Harriet Burkett and Magdalena Temple anyways? Didn't they know, as we do now, that they were working in a model industrial community, nestled in unmatched natural splendor? Indeed, the view from the paper mill over the valley of the Brandywine to the forested hills beyond was breathtaking. The scenery was splendid, and so were the accommodations. Joshua Gilpin, who founded the paper mill in 1787, built his mansion near the top of the hill, with gardens and, and walks around it tastefully arranged. His younger brother and co-partner, Thomas Gilpin, owned a cottage and a greenhouse nearby. Should sightseers come to call, Thomas would treat them with ice water, crackers, and Sapsago cheese. Even more idyllic was the large stone house of Lawrence Greatrake, the paper mill foreman from about 1800 to 1817. His house had a courtyard in front, a balcony in the rear, and at the side a winding path planted with vines and shrubs. No tree was left untrimmed, no leaf unraked in Mrs. Greatrake's garden. Farther down the hill, the paper mill workers lived in several rows of well-ventilated, well-shaded stone cottages, all primly painted yellow. Before their whitewashed doors were tiny, neatly tended front yards. Many Brandywine employees grew their own produce, which they could store in an ice house built by Thomas Gilpin. The Gilpins also built a schoolhouse, and they hired a full-time schoolmaster, whose duties included night classes for the adults during winter, 
they supported a Sunday school as well. That these experiments with employee housing and education were enlightened goes without saying. Labor, management, and owners all lived happily together on the banks of the Brandywine Creek, so it would seem. Certainly it was a propitious place to run a paper mill, or any mill for that matter, for the Brandywine was a superlative source of industrial water power. From the gorge above Wilmington down to the tidewaters of the Delaware River, the Brandywine fell about 120 feet. Within these four miles, Philoarians built 50 merchant mills, 50 sawmills, eight forges, seven fulling mills, four grist mills, four paper mills, three oil mills, a snuff mill, a furnace, and a tilt hammer. The Gilpins built the Brandywine paper mill only yards upstream from this early American industrial park. Joshua and Thomas's great uncle had bought the property around 1745. One of the first Philoarians, great uncle Gilpin owned land elsewhere in the Wilmington area and in Maryland as well, but the Brandywine tract was his most astute investment. With his real estate as security and with support from his mother's family, Joshua converted a snuff mill to paper manufacture in 1787. It was an immediate success. Eight years later, he entrusted the mill to his younger brother and left for a grand tour of England and the continent. In England, he studied paper making and social climbing. Joshua charmed factory foremen and the daughters of factory owners with equal ruthlessness. Sometimes he, he penetrated a paper mill by way of the parlor. Often he plundered the parlor as well. And in 1801, he returned home with a wife, a son, a dowry, and 10 notebooks crammed with facts and figures on bluing, bleaching, and sizing. In 1811, he returned to England to pry more money from his in-laws and more secrets from British papermakers. So successful was his industrial espionage that the brothers Gilpin developed the first papermaking machine in America and perhaps also the first bleaching apparatus fit for mass production. The Brandywine paper mill prospered, so it would seem. Joshua and Thomas completely modernized it in 1808. And in 1816, they built a second one for their papermaking machine. The old mill specialized in writing papers, banknote and security products, and in the better grades of printing papers. It started with two vats, employing less than 30 in the mid-1790s. By 1820, the Gilpins had invested $100,000 in their two major mill buildings. They produced $63,000 to $90,000 worth of paper a year, and they paid wages totaling $20,000 to 18 men, 6 boys, 20 women, and 60 children. So then, why were Harriet Burkett and Magdalena Temple so desperate to escape from this typical American success story? I have told you about the benevolence of the Gilpins, their scenic surroundings, their business flair and their inventive genius. What I haven't told you yet is that this picturesque curve of the Brandywine Creek also witnessed madness, treachery, heartbreak, 
and naked human greed. I propose to unfold a tale of woe, a tale of woe quite unlike most accounts of early book trades and quite unlike Dart Hunter's standard history of the early American papermaking industry. <laughs> Dart Hunter knew intimately the technical hardships of hand papermaking, having endured many himself. But Hunter, a die-hard arts and crafts romantic, if there ever was one, rarely mentioned the business hardships of pioneer papermakers that they had to contend with fractious employees, disloyal middle management, and a capricious economy is hinted at but never explained. From Hunter we learn about the Industrial Revolution through its technological causes, not through its disastrous social and economic effects. More is known about the Brandywine Mill than practically any other American mill of the hand paper making era, let's say from 1690 to about 1830. The Gilpin's family history and their improvements in paper making technology are especially well documented. And yet, except for the occasional sobering afterward, nothing has been said about their business tribulations. The Gilpins suffered the same hardships as the average mill owner, but they recorded them, and some of their records survive. Among them are Joshua Gilpin's travel diaries, 1795 to 1801 a complete volume of production reports and business memoranda for the year 1808. The Gilpin's notes on mill improvements circa 1815-1816 and later family correspondence. The Gilpin papers include valuable information on all aspects of mill life, sorting rags, tending the engines, working the vats, sizing and finishing. Previous accounts of the Brandywine Mill have emphasized the Gilpin's savoir-faire and their technological innovations at the expense of these disagreeable details. I will emphasize manufacturing methods, business transactions, and other specifics of paper mill management. I'll begin with those managed, the employees, and I will proceed in strict order of hierarchy, for that order was strict indeed, to the managers themselves. The first Brandywine Mill stood three stories high on foundations 116 feet long and 23 to 40 feet deep. Adjoining the stout stone walls of the main building were a bleaching house and three smaller structures. Along the top story, adjustable wooden shutters let the summer breezes into the drying loft and kept the winter rains out. The mill race ran through the bottom story to an overshot water wheel which powered three engines on the second story. Also on the second story was the rag room. To my mind, the most godforsaken spot of the paper mill. It was a pest hole during the summer and a fire trap during the winter. In warm weather, not only did the rags stink, but also, judging from the complaints, so did the employees. The risk of disease during a heat wave sometimes halted rag shipments and rag sorting altogether. Since loose fiber ignites easily, paper mill fires often started here. The Gilpin's foreman, Lawrence Greatrake, enforced stringent fire precautions. Only with the greatest reluctance and only at the last possible moment did he allow a stove 
in this most flammable room of the paper mill. In 1808, women and children worked there without heat until the end of October. On the 25th of January, Great Rake flew into an unprovoked rage and confiscated the stove. The rag room was, he declared, a serious, nauseous, and continued evil, and never more shall a fire be in it with my consent. On the next day, the rag workers walked out. As might be expected, the Gilpins had trouble staffing this department. But somebody had to dress the six to 8,000 pounds of rags the mill consumed every month. Great Rake sometimes advertised in the Delaware Gazette for a few smart active girls or women to whom constant employ and good wages will be given. The employ was constant, all right, for they were expected to work nearly 12 hours a day, year in, year out. As to wages, children earned from $1.25 to $1.50 a week, by piecework, of course. Indentured women earned twice as much, and they were twice as conscientious as well, Great Rake claimed. Peevishly, he reminded the Gilpins that cleanliness was most ardently coveted in English paper mills, where subordination is established and where adults only are employed to prepare and dress rags for fine work. For purposes of safety and morale, the Gilpins eventually quarantined their rag room in a building to itself. Presumably, they isolated the bleachery for the same reasons. It too was, was a health hazard and a fire trap. They built it in the summer of 1804, having carefully examined several English methods, just in case they bought a license from the agent of the American patentee. Inside were immense copper retorts fixed in furnaces built of stone. In these retorts, the bleachery workers cooked a mixture of salt, manganese, and vitriolic acid not exactly the friendliest of chemicals. And from these retorts came chlorine gas. Nowadays, when we sent chlorine near a jackknifed truck or a derailed train, we evacuate entire towns. Apparently, the Gilpins piped it into another chamber where they placed the rags, dried pulp, or finished sheets on frames. After the colors were bleached out, they rinsed the acid and the chlorine out with water. Or at least they tried to, for chlorine and water makes hydrochloric acid. Although the Gilpins knew of better and safer methods, they opted for chlorine because it was cheap, fast, and cost-effective. Great Rake estimated that it would cost $2.62 to bleach 100 pounds of colored rags, provided that the rags were strong enough. Conservators, by the way, can take pride in Great Rake, who warned that bleached papers would disintegrate even if their rags didn't. Although better paid than most paper mill workers, Fatman had to contend with cold, damp, and grueling monotony. Like most American hand papermakers, the Gilpins operated two vats, one for quality products like writing, drawing, banknote, and copper plate papers, the other for ordinary printing stock. To staff both with skilled and willing workmen was just about impossible. Even when the stuff was heated, 
Batman suffered from aches and pains the year round. I am convinced they took to liquor to numb themselves. Should a Batman succumb to the cold, the physical effort, or the night before, the second Batman or an apprentice would have to take over. On one occasion, an apprentice wrung his hand from this unaccustomed labor. Skilled Vatmen knew they were indispensable and exploited it whenever they could. Let me relate a perfectly ordinary example. In June 1808, the Gilpins received a rush order from the Philadelphia publishers Morgan and Manning, owners of a part interest in a 17-volume Shakespeare, Morgan and Manning wanted 400 reams of wove royal paper in three months. One vat could make five reams a day, Great Rake figured. And so it did, now and then, until mid-October when the Gilpins realized they had delivered only 70. Frantically, they put both vats to work on the Morgan and Manning job. Junior Vatman, Clotworthy Barber, wasn't all that skilled, but he was certainly clever enough to scent panic in the air. He immediately pressed for higher wages and got them, though Great Rake claimed the Gilpins were giving him a donation, not a raise. Barber also demanded a shorter working day, but this, Great Rake said, I shall stoutly oppose. Morgan and Manning's Shakespeare paper, as they called it, was engine-sized. And a good thing, too, for it would have taken months to size the sheets by hand. Here, patience and delicacy were so important that Great Rake insisted on sizing the finer grades himself. He devoted three weeks to sizing a batch of superfine wove litrus and he broke only half a choir, Great Rake boasted, although his ham-handed apprentices would lose six of 56 reams on the parting bench and in the finishing room. Like Vatman, skilled sizers were hard to find, and they were hard to keep, for even preparing the size was disagreeable. Everyone in the sizing room fell sick every October overcome with noxious fumes from the size cuddle, I suppose. But when working conditions became intolerable or just plain boring, Vatman, sizers, and other skilled employees could find work elsewhere, and that they did. In April 1808, John Fisher had just begun to master the Vatman skills. In November, he gave notice explaining that he wanted to work in a mill closer to Philadelphia where he could go to the theater and, as he put it, have a little pleasure of his life. Single young men will never do here, a rueful great rake moralized. Even when sober, married men were no better than the bachelors. When Uriah Wilson and his wife suddenly departed on a pleasure trip, no one was left to take his place at the vat. But that hardly troubled the vacation plans of Uriah Wilson. His time would be up soon anyways. To make matters worse, paper mill owners often recruited one another's labor. When the American paper industry went through boom periods, 
which it did frequently, the apprenticeship system could not keep up with the demand for experienced manpower. Thus, speculators who built new mills or expanded old ones had no choice but to staff them by raiding their competitors. Just as Texas Instruments or Lockheed does now, they offered outlandish wages and phantasmagorical fringe benefits. Hopkins and Byard of Essex County, New Jersey, briefly tempted fat man Uriah Wilson and utterly seduced engine tender Joseph Gibson with a salary of $8 a week, 18 to 20 acres of land, and a good house. The Gilpins themselves hired a talented and versatile fat man out from under their Pennsylvania neighbor, John Matthews. But no one coveted his neighbor's labor more ardently than John Le Missourier of the Battersea Paper Mill, Petersburg, Virginia. Somehow, Le Missourier procured a letter of recommendation from Joshua Gilpin. With this in hand, he introduced himself to an unwitting Lawrence Greatrake who obligingly showed him through the mill. What interested Le Missourier, however, was not papermaking practice, but papermaking personnel. In particular, that underhanded junior vatman, Clotworthy Barber, to whom he offered a good house, a good garden, and a servant girl to himself, this great rake underlined, pasturage for two or more cows and $500 per annum. Under the impression that Alan Mills was the sizer at Brandywine, Le Missourier promised him a house, a pasture, $6 a week, and as much coal as he could burn. Barber gave two, gave two weeks notice immediately and Mills succumbed soon after. Despondent at first, Great Rake eventually worked himself into a rage and finally challenged Le Missourier to a duel. <laughs> His letters to Joshua mixed fury with self-pity. As I am equally injured and as my life is but of very little importance, if you, sir, will not, why, I will call him out, which he did. But, undaunted by Great Rake's bellicose epistle, Le Missourier emptied the Brandywine Mill of its last finisher. <laughs> and soon, even Great Rake's children wanted to go south. <laughs> Life at the Battersea paper mill was just as Le Missourier painted it, claimed Clotworthy Barber. No one there earned less than six fifty a week, and Barber owned a house built to his own specifications, which included a cellar, a ceiling, a garden, a man to deliver wood, and the servant girl as promised. No matter what their age or nationality, mill hands were hard to discipline at times like that. As early as 1790, the Gilpin family tried to hire French papermakers, reputedly more docile than the Irish variety children were no more docile than their elders, since they too worked under contract and had legal rights. On one occasion, Great Rake whipped an apprentice girl so furiously that her mother took her to the magistrates and showed them her daughter's bloodied arms and back. 
These marks of the lash were not his, quite Ray consisted. Either the girl or her mother faked them. With episodes like this in mind, Great Rake punished his workers when he dared and cajoled them when he had to. The effort of disciplining them would crush a lesser man, he confided to the Gilpins. I am unwittingly compelled to acknowledge that I am now experimentally convinced how little reliance can be placed on the great body of work people here. And in consequence of such a conviction, I shall trust no one in future any further than necessity may compel me to it. I expect no other than a severe, laborious, and arduous life. But I, however, prefer what everyone is not equal to. Great Rake's morose protestations vexed the Gilpins. These Philadelphia gentlemen purposely stayed away from the Brandywine Mill and its mischievous personnel. They didn't want to hear about grisly working conditions. They wanted to hear about production. To them, labor relations were a matter of standardizing output, setting a figure on how many reams of full scat, post, medium, and royal should be made per day. Of course, journeymen had their own ideas about productivity and apparently their own regulations, but so did the mill owners. In Pennsylvania and Delaware, the Society of Papermakers appointed a committee of superintendents to collect production statistics. When business was bad, mill owners might be expected to shut down a vat voluntarily. If they laid off the workers too, well, that was their business. When business was good, as it was in 1815, an enterprising papermaker might add a vat or two to his mill and, of course, hire more labor. But rather than bolstering their payroll, the Gilpins decided to mechanize. They pondered whether to rent a Fordrinier or to develop a cylinder papermaking machine of their own. Either would be helpful in getting rid of the journeymen and their regulations, Great Rake assured them. They opted for the cylinder, which was simpler and easier to copy from English models. Completed in 1817, the prototype machine produced the equivalent of three reams an hour on a 30-inch web. So, when two men and a boy operated it at standard speed, their output equaled that of 10 vats. According to one account, they could do the work of 12 men and six boys, saving the Gilpins six to $12,000 worth of wages a year. Whether anybody was laid off because of the machine, I do not know. But I do know that if Great Rake had his way, some would have been fired on general principle. As you can see, I like to quote from Lawrence Great Rake's letters. They communicate so well the Sturm und Drang of early American papermaking. <laughs> From them, you might have guessed that Great Rake teetered on the verge of hysteria throughout the year 1808, our Annus Terabilis of the Brandywine paper mill. Indeed, he did. Great Rake may seem to you a blowhard, a bully, and a buffoon as well. He was all that and more but he was a hell of a papermaker. A Gilpin advertisement called him 
a foreign artist of superior knowledge in the business. That business, Great Rake learned at his father's fat in Hemel Hempstead, Hertfordshire. Exactly where that vat was, I'm not quite sure, for Great Rakes owned or managed several mills in the vicinity at the end of the 18th century. And I'm equally unsure which of those Great Rakes was Lawrence's father. The Two Waters Mill in Hemel Hempstead was associated with a family from 1771 through 1804. Although the chronology and the details of ownership are obscure, it would seem that the Great Rakes managed the mill for the Fredriniers, the same Fredriniers who financed the paper-making machine. In his letters to the Gilpins, Great Rake boasted a close acquaintance with Henry Fredrinier, a very ignorant and narrow-souled man. Roger Great Rake is probably our best candidate for Lawrence's father. A respected member of the trade, he owned the Apsley Mill, in Hemel Hempstead by 1778. When Joshua Gilpin visited the Apsley Mill in 1796, Lawrence was clearly in charge, though his father still lived nearby. Although unimpressed with the mill, an old patched affair, Joshua thought highly of Lawrence. Within the week, he invited him and his partner, George Stafford, to dinner, during which both blurted out all they knew about English typefounding and papermaking. Lawrence promised more as soon as Joshua was safely out of the country. Joshua took the hint, offered him a job, and Lawrence emigrated three years later. I know nothing about his life until 1808, by which time the Gilpins were barely on speaking terms with their paper mill foreman. The Gilpin Great Rake honeymoon came to a truculent end. Chief among Great Rake's grievances was his disappointment at not being made a full partner in the Brandywine enterprise. Instead, the Gilpins paid him $110 every week, some of which went into his salary, but most paid the various debts of the mill. Possibly, he had some personal income from paper manufactured on the side. Every month, he sent a production report to the Gilpins. And he settled his accounts with them at the end of the year, presumably then untangling his business from theirs. But balancing the books was not enough. Great Rake yearned to see his name on Brandywine ream wrappers. He wanted a share in the business and preferably a house on property of his own. The more he pestered the Gilpins about his third of the mill, his house, and his garden, the more reluctant they were to commit themselves. Apparently, they kept him in agonized suspense until the day he died in 1817. That he died of a gout in the stomach does not surprise me. For that, I believe, was his obituarist's term for an ulcer. Great Rake family affairs in England also contributed fatal stomach acid. In 1795, Lawrence's father sold the family interest in the Apsley Mill to their partner, George Stafford. I have not yet had a chance to see the bill of sale, which is here in New York, but from Lawrence's letters, I gather that Stafford paid 
4,500 pounds on some sort of easy payment plan. Imagine Lawrence's surprise when the Grand Junction Canal was built right next to the paper mill in 1800. Imagine his rage when John Dickinson bought the mill for 23,600 pounds in 1809. What was once a decrepit two-vat mill housed a steam engine and two fredriniers by 1815, which was when Lawrence returned to England to salvage the family fortune. In his spare time, he spied on papermakers and their papermaking machines, so he went with a Gilpin's blessing. Ruefully, he wrote to them, had I stayed another year in England, I would have been a partner in the immense concern at Apsley. Our losses from my father's dismal infirmity have been immense, and I am now reproached for not suing out a statute of lunacy to set aside his engagements with a nefarious Stafford who is now a wretch in affluence. Because of his suit against Stafford, Great Rake never surrendered his English citizenship. This made his loyalty suspect during the War of 1812. Accused of unpatriotic sentiments, he and his son George were banished to Reading, Pennsylvania, and then confined to the Brandywine premises. Great Rake had himself naturalized in days, of course. Less wisely, he protested in the columns of the local newspaper, claiming that he, his father, and his grandfather were all known in England as notorious Whigs, that his grandfather spent 15,000 pounds in support of the American cause, and that he personally hoped to kindle his paper mill stoves with timber from British ships. All of this fell on hostile, disbelieving ears. A more noisy, boasting, vociferous son of John Bull never left the barren shores of Albion, read one indignant letter to the editor. Another accused him of a seditious joke, which I will inflict on you. While British armed forces advanced up the Potomac towards Washington, Great Wake wandered into downtown Wilmington. There he accosted a gentleman in the street with, I quote, Well, sir, some members are going to Congress without being invited by Jimmy Madison. Strong stuff in those days, and also utterly tactless. Yes, Lawrence Great Wake was cordially hated by all who knew him, and he was hated most by those who knew him well. <laughs> Six years after he and his wife Eliza settled in America, something happened to shatter Great Wake marital harmony once and for all. Exactly what estranged Lawrence and Eliza is not clear, but when the breath of scandal reached his family in Hertfordshire, the domestic crisis was represented to have arose from the most disgraceful and disgusting circumstances. Nevertheless, Lawrence and Eliza had eight children. A daughter married into the prestigious Peel family of Philadelphia and spent the next four years in an insane asylum.
a Lawrence Great Rake, purveyor of patent medicines and self-proclaimed, self-ordained Baptist minister was another unfortunate result of this unfortunate union. Even his mentor, Joshua Gilpin, lost patience with Lawrence's self-pity and self-importance, but he never regretted hiring him. Perhaps it was only coincidence that the Brandywine Mill foundered soon after his death in 1817. Certainly, fortune turned against the Gilpins about that time, and from then on, it subjected them to every conceivable disaster of the papermaking business. Some they could have avoided, others not, but everyone was endemic to the trade. Since so many American papermakers traveled along the same road to ruin, I propose to retrace it every step of the way. First of all, the Gilpins had to cope with an incredibly capricious economy. They lost $30,000 when one of their Philadelphia associates went bankrupt in 1818. A year later, they lost even more when two banks failed in Wilmington. This was a crowning blow. Unable to meet payments, Joshua and Thomas reorganized the firm, closed their commercial house in Philadelphia, and moved their business to the Brandywine. They cut their expenses and they cut their salaries. Luckily, they still owned vast tracts of real estate, which they offered as security for their debts. And that seemed to satisfy their creditors. No longer were they Philadelphia merchants with far-flung investments. Now they concentrated their resources on doing what they did best, papermaking. But papermaking is a precarious business requiring the steady support of outside capital and massive infusions of same in case of emergency. This they learned during the disastrous night of February 22, 1822. For two days, it had rained steadily. The creek had risen steadily, and that night it overflowed its banks by 20 feet. The torrent wrecked raceways, swept away mill dams, and damaged mill buildings one after another but none so extensively as the Gilpins. Downstream tumbled a thousand dollars worth of paper ready for market, the stone building they had erected for preparing rags, and most of the rags they stored there. Having lost other outbuildings as well, the Gilpins estimated their damage at fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. Once again, they defaulted on their obligations. No doubt their insurance covered some of these losses, but now more than ever, they lacked the wherewithal to pay salaries and debts. And yet, after having forced Thomas into bankruptcy, his creditors were still optimistic. Not only did they let the firm stay in business, but by buying some of its machinery, they contributed operating funds as well. And thus, the Brandywine Mill limped onto its next catastrophe. At noon, 
the 30th of March, 1825, in full view of the workers and other curious bystanders. The old mill house went up in flames. It was a bizarre spectacle. While the fire burned within the stone hulk of the building, the wind picked up lighted sheets of paper and blew them for miles about. In the whole range of my acquaintance, I do not know any who have been so persecuted by fortune or misfortune as the Gilpins, a neighbor remarked. This time, they estimated their losses at $20,000, a sum that finally surpassed the patience of their creditors. They seized Joshua and Thomas's joint personal property and squeezed what they could from their real estate, which was already encumbered well over its real value. Even Joshua's father-in-law tried to recover some of his investments, though without much success. Only Joshua's household goods were left valued at $800. When the sheriff auctioned the furniture off in 1826, Joshua's son managed to buy most of it back for only 600. Yet once again, the Brandywine paper mill was reorganized. The Gilpins wrote off the old mill, abandoned hand paper making altogether, and sold what was left to a syndicate of Philadelphia businessmen. The Brandywine Manufacturing Company, as it was then called, converted the mill to textile manufacture in June 1837. A year or two later, the Brandywine flooded the premises again and wrecked them for good. I would like to suggest that these fires and floods were not freak accidents. Paper mill fires could start anywhere. Mill owners had to keep an eye out not just on stoves and lanterns, but also on highly combustible materials like rags and lime. Equally dangerous were the charcoal fires they used to heat the vats and boil size. To prevent mildew, Simons, Case, and Company of Farmington, New York, put a brazier in their drying loft, which took fire and inflicted a loss of $5,000. The paper mill of Amos Bradley and Sons in Dansville, New York, had been operated only a year when it burned down in 1838. It was worth $20,000 in construction costs alone, of which insurance covered only 10500 if that wasn't bad enough, other mills belonging to the same firm went up in flames in 1839, 1841, 1845, and 1854. From 1768 to the mid-19th century, more than 60 paper mills suffered fire damage, most of which were rebuilt, but not without losses of $1,500 to $5,000. Floods were less frequent, but no less calamitous. A particularly savage freshet, sweeping away not just the raceway and the mill dam, but also the mill buildings as well. I know of 12 paper mills damaged by floods, eight of which were destroyed altogether. The Burbank Mill in Sharon, Vermont, for example, was wrecked three times over.
And to complete my catalog of catastrophes, I know of five paper makers who went bankrupt just about the same time as Joshua and Thomas. So, the Gilpins were not alone in their misfortunes. Although more sophisticated, innovative, and enterprising by far, they were no better off than the humblest backwoods papermaker, especially when streams filled up with silt, when rags were scarce, or when cheap foreign paper was dumped on the American market. They were equally helpless without a steady supply of capital, good weather, willing labor, and a fair marketplace. I hope I haven't ruined your evening with this grim picture of industrial revolution papermaking, but the fact is that mechanized papermaking was then, and perhaps still is, the most precarious of book arts. Thank you.